0: Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron.
1: Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is Miller Chevalier's Jason Workmaster, one of uh, of the folks I periodically have come on the show to talk government contracting legal issues. Uh, Jason, uh, welcome back to the show.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Roger. Well, hi, thanks for having me back.
1: Well, um, you know, there's a lot going on these days, and I, yeah, we, we have a lot of topics to cover uh, in a short period of time, but I think the first thing let's let, you know, that's on top of mind of everybody in the government contract community is the vaccine mandate. Um, yes. So if you could just sort of, a summary of what it is and where we are with it. And then we can talk about some of the most recent you know, sure. developments.
0: Sure. I mean, and, and, you know, the, the, the mandate is I'm sure all many listeners are well aware wasn't, you know, d- didn't exist uh, two months ago. It was uh, September, you know, September 9th, uh, the president issued uh, an executive order uh, requiring that government contractors of, uh, uh, comply, well, he directed that a clause be put into covered contracts requiring government contractors that had that clause uh, to comply with guidance, which at that point was to be issued by the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force. Uh, and, um, you know, following the president's executive order on September 9th, a couple of weeks later on September 24th, uh, we got the guidance uh, from the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force, uh, which defined some key terms for us uh, and also, you know, uh, put some more flesh on the some more meat on the bones of what the requirements uh, were going to be. And, you know, kind of the headline requirement. Is that for covered contractor employees? Those are employees, let's just stay at the prime level for a a moment, just because it's simpler to talk about. You know, if you're at the prime contract level, you get the clause in your contract. um, All covered contractor employees, which are those employees that are working on that contract or in connection with that contract, are required to be vaccinated. And even if those folks are working from home, a hundred percent of the time, the on the face of the guidance and the executive order, um, those folks have to be vaccinated. And then, if you are uh, working, if you're working at a covered contractor workplace, which is defined as you know a workplace that is controlled by the contractor, uh, if there is any. Covered contractor employee that is likely to be present at that location during the period of performance, then the entire facility is considered a covered contractor workplace, and everybody that works there has to be vaccinated, regardless of what all the employees of the contractor have, that are that work there have to be vaccinated, regardless of what they're doing. Uh, so you would
1: say, Jason, that's a it was a very expansive implementation.
0: Very expansive with, you know, and and the executive order and then the the subsequent guidance is very clear. You know, this reaches, you know, think, think of it as reaching essentially every contract you could imagine or contract like instrument, even. So think, you know, OTAs, you know, even though they're not what we think of as far, you know, they're not far covered contracts, you know, the executive order covers both far based contracts and non far based contract or contract like instruments. Uh, for any, for services, you know, think of it as any contract or contract-like instrument for services. There are some exceptions, grants are an exception. Uh, and uh, uh, if you're, the, if the uh, uh, empl- employee question is you know, performing work, you know, outside the United States or South Line areas, you know, those folks are exempt. Uh, contracts with Indian tribes, uh, th- those are exempt. But, you know, for the vast majority, of service contractors, uh, this clause—if uh, they don't already have it—you know here we are at the uh, beginning of uh, November, uh, and the government has been rolling the clause out. So, you know, I mentioned the guidance that's from the task force. You know, just a few days after that, we began to see the the deviation clauses roll out from the FAR Council and from DOD uh, for agencies to use uh, in their contracts. And all of that guidance for the most part, all of, you know, all of so those clauses and the guidance that came along with, with the issuance of those clauses, you know, saying, hey, you know, because the, the executive order and the guidance had established certain deadlines where the clause is going to be required. So for contracts that are awarded November 14th or later, that the, the, the clause is going to you know, contracts, uh, new contracts, options, uh, exercise of options, renewals you know, the clause is going to be required after November 14th in those, in those actions. Uh, and if the clause, you know, if you get a contract uh, on November 14th, uh, the, the clause is going, you know, the, the current guidance is that uh, your folks who need to be vaccinated are going to have to be vaccinated by the 8th of December. Now for ongoing contracts, we've gotten a lot of questions on that front. You know, well, what if my contract is ongoing? I'm not going to get a new contract or renewal until let's just say January 1 as a, as an easy one. So the clause isn't going to hit my contract until January 1st, 2022. Well, if that's the case, then you will have until January 1st to get compliant uh, because January 1st will be the date the clause will hit your contract. And that'll be the date uh, on which those who are supposed to be vaccinated are supposed to be vaccinated. Uh, And then, you know, I mentioned the contractor workplaces You know, those also at those workplaces, there's also going to be social distancing and masking requirements uh, that you'll have to implement uh, as well.
1: So in it and the way I understand, too, is that with regard to product applies to services pretty clearly. But for prime contracts exclusively for products, it doesn't necessarily apply. But different (laughs) agencies and departments are applying it. Right. Because the the push is to to. Yes. Even though it doesn't apply, you can apply
0: it. Yes, even though the president has not required its application in contracts exclusively for products. For example, the GSA schedules, you know, Roger, that you and I talk about so often. The GSA has made the determination it's not going to get down into the schedules to figure out which ones are for products and which ones are for services. They're going to apply the clause across the entire schedules program. NASA similarly has decided that it is going to apply the clause all the way down uh, to the micro-purchase threshold. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's very, you know, NASA has taken a very broad approach uh, to this. And then, you know, if you're a sub, if you're out there and you're a subcontractor, you know, you should just be aware that this clause is one of those mandatory flow downs that we talk about uh, every so often. And the prime contractors are going to be required to flow this down. Now, if they have the standard FAR deviation clause, it's only going to be required to be flowed down to subcontracts for services that are over the simplified acquisition threshold of $250,000. But if you have a NASA prime contractor, NASA has changed that flow down to require a similar flow down, even to subcontracts for products uh, all the way down to the micro purchase threshold. uh, If you have a NASA prime contract. So if you're under a NASA prime contract, so, you know, it's very far reaching. Um, The other thing I think is important to note right off the, right off the, off the bat is you know this is a dynamic compliance obligation you know the obligation in the if you read the i mean this far deviation clause is very simple all it says is go comply with the guidance including the faqs that, that come out with the guy so it's a very i've never seen a far clause quite like it you know that says
1: so you're you have something that it's cross-referenced to that could change at any time right uh, With updated frequently asked questions or new guidance in it. Right. Yeah. That's exactly. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that does make it a dynamic, uh, ongoing sort of, you have to stay on top of things and check those frequently asked questions periodically to, to to try to make sure you're, you're staying on top of things. Um, yeah, I do have a couple questions. And I think the one I'm gonna tee up because we're almost right up at the break already, okay. uh, Jason. And I know we're gonna we'll finish up on the vaccine mandate and turn to some of the other interesting things going on right now in government contracts uh from a compliance perspective. But one of my questions is just if your sense some some new guidance came out just last mm. week, um, November first. Yep. Uh, Newer frequently asked questions and what those mean or don't mean for government contractors and and contracting officers in the government, yeah. and also just if you have a sense. One thing I always wondered is why you know the OSHA guidance it talks about ah. testing versus mandates versus right. requiring the, versus a vaccine, but the government contracts just talks about the vaccine, you know, mandating the vaccine and why the distinction. Yeah. If you have any sense why that why that yeah. is, sure. So. Okay, so when we come back, we'll tackle those two questions, and we'll turn to another virus-based initiative. That's the cyber task force, the DOJ's new cyber task force. It's going to focus on compliance in the the Civil False Claims Act in the context of government cyber uh, security requirements and contracts. My guest today is Jason Workmaster from Miller-Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier, uh, and we're talking about you know current developments in government contracts. Uh, in first segment, we've focused on the vaccine mandate, the implementation of that, and you know we're going to finish up with a couple of questions there that I teed up in the, at the end of the last segment. And the first one is, as I mentioned, uh, November first, some additional updated frequently asked questions were were put out in that dynamic, you know, guidance that contractors have to be aware of. Uh, and I think your perspective is this is generally sort of good news for government contractors.
0: Oh, absolutely. Because I mean in, in the immediate aftermath of the of the executive board and the guidance and the clause, you know, the question we kept getting asked was, Well, you know, if I'm as long as I'm, you know, trying my best, isn't that good enough? Because, you know, if I'm making a good faith effort to get into compliance, because the the concern was what do I do if I, if if there's folks who are you know, potentially really important to performance of the contract who refuse to get vaccinated, you know, or if they you know, if they have requests and accommodation and that's going to take some time to process and, you know, that the, this 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 obligation goes live potentially December 8th and I'm not quite there yet. What, what, what do I do? Uh, And, you know, before this guy, this this guy's came out earlier this week, you know, the answer to that was, well, um, you know, in a contract, it's kind of an awful one compliance, either either compliance or you're not, you know, good faith normally doesn't, you know, matter unless it's part of, you know, kind of baked into the obligation. And that's what happened on Monday. So with the the FAQ, uh, FAQ, the additional FAQs that came out the government made clear that what they are expecting here is it's it, and, they, and they kind of tied it to what the government itself is doing with government employees. You know, they're making as, you know, as much of a good faith effort as they can to get as many people vaccinated as they can. And they made clear in these FAQs that, you know, if you're working, if you're processing accommodation, uh, you know, cause there's, you know, there's two bases for an exception, either religious exemption, there's either you have a sincerely held religious belief practice or observance or, you have a medical condition, a disability, uh, disability or medical condition that prevents you from getting the vaccine. You know, if those are being processed or, you know, let's say you're you, you just got your first shot. You're not quite there to get the second shot yet. You know, the government made clear in the FAQ on Monday, those kind of situations, the government is going to work with you, you know, to, to get you into compliance. Now, the premise of that is that, you know, you, the contractor, are going to be in communication, with your contracting officer about the status of you know where you are on compliance and you know I think what this 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 FAQ really has done is made the job of the contracting officer on the government side a lot more difficult because you know the government contracting officer now is going to kind of be in the middle uh, of working with the contractor to work through these issues it's not going to be as easy as just Hey, contractor, go comply and let me know how, you know, and, you know, let me know if there's a problem, you know, it's, it's going to be, no, we're coming to the contracting officer. We want to work these issues out together, which from the contractor's perspective, you know, is, and, and look, just as a practical reality, I mean, that, that is, you know, in my personal view as a policy matter, that's a good place to end up because, you know, the, the, the government, you know, we were on the, the white house actually had a a zoom call on Monday as they rolled this out. uh, And uh, you know, they're, you know, they responded to concerns that, you know, there's concerns that what is the impact, you know, we're already having all these massive supply chain issues, right. That, you know, impacting the entire economy, not just government procurement, you know, and there's this concern, well, if we impose this and this slows things down, you know, another thing we've been telling our clients is because we've seen this, you know, the government reaching out in advance of, you know, when the clause is required in new contract actions, when you have the opportunity to take this kind of stuff into account in your pricing, they're trying to roll this out to existing contracts through bilateral mods, you know, and we're, you know, we've been telling folks, you know, you got to be careful with that because if you just sign the bilateral mod, you know, if this has a cost or schedule impact, you need to be thinking about that and reserving your rights to seek a, an equitable adjustment uh, that to take those into account. Otherwise you might get stuck with that. So, I mean, I think it is, it is good to see, you know, that this is being, uh, that FAQ is, you know, it was very, very, uh, Gave I think contractors just a much better sense of, you know, that they're not going to be left just kind of holding the bag, uh, with this new compliance obligation. Right. Sort of a follow-up
1: question to your to, to the one that I wondered. So the OSHA guidance, mm. which applies to, you know, companies with over 100 employees nationwide, you know, uh, it includes the ability for it to have a testing alternative. Why do you think? Yeah, you know, the government contract side didn't include that. Is it a cost issue?
0: Is it a performance uh, issue? Just management issue? Or I think there's a I I mean, again, this is just from the outside looking in. I, I think there's a legal issue there. I, I you know, I, I think that the administration feels that, you know, the OSHA rule is a more aggressive use of the federal government's authority than the the contractor rule. You know i think with with you because i think we can you know there's look there's already been there's already court challenges to the contractor mandate there's going to be challenges to osha you know the osha issue is going to raise some you know questions about the reach of the commerce power and all that kind of stuff i think that's why the osha requirement on the vaccine front is not as far reaching because i think the government i think the administration feels more comfortable about the legal basis for the president's authority to issue the executive order to contractors than they do about where they stand on OSHA. And we're going to see some very, I mean, the, the case, the, you know, Florida has filed suit against the, the, the mandate for contractors. Um, they've just filed their motion for a, a preliminary injunction. I mean, Roger, that's going to be also just as a general, just a more general matter, uh, that case and the other challenges. You're going to raise the question of the scope of the president's authority over co- over the contracting process. Uh, you know, which should, could be, you know, have more far reaching out, you know, implications than just than just the no. vaccine. Yeah.
1: From a legal perspective, that makes sense. I mean, the, your analysis and this, that, you know, government contracts, there's a relationship, right? There's money in exchange for services or products. The government, you know, has much more of the a tie, a hook to be able to require things than the OSHA yep. rule, perhaps. Yep. We'll see. Yep. So, well, that's good. That's that's We're done with the, the mandate for a while. <laughs> okay. So okay. Nothing else happens on it. So let's turn to um, DOJ and some of their Civil False Claims Act initiatives. Um, you know, there's the Procurement Collusion Task Force that's been in place for a while, which we'll yep. talk about in a minute. But I think, you know, just breaking news in a certain sense, uh, two or three weeks ago, DOJ announced the cybersecurity task force, the cyber task force related to potential civil false claims act issues. So what's, what's going on there, Jason? We have have about a minute and a half left or so, so we get it started and we can go. All right. So, I mean,
0: again, as the contracting community is well aware, I mean, the government just becomes, you know, with every passing day gets more and more and more concerned about, you know, about cybersecurity, Uh, you know, for folks that have, you know, are in the DOD space have been following the CMMC, CMMC process, you know, that's kind of been uh, put on hold, uh, for at least the time being, but that does not mean that the government is not interested in uh, protecting um, uh, its data. So, you know, this, you know, it it it, 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 we've already seen even before this, this new task force was, task force was stood up, you know, this new initiative at DOJ, we've already seen, you know, cases, false claims act cases, you know, involving uh, allegations that, you know, the, of, 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 of that a contractor has not lived up to its cybersecurity obligations in its contract. So, you know, this following, following that activity as, as, as listeners probably who have who've heard Roger and I talk about, you know, false claims act stuff before, you know, false, false claims act, the false claims act is a, you know, a statute that enables either the government or itself or a private party, a whistleblower to bring an action alleging fraud uh, against government contractors or you know any entity that is making a claim for money against the United States, you know they can you know those parties can come in, allege uh, fraud under the False Claims Act, and uh, under the statute, the government is then entitled to treble damages and penalties. And if it's a whistleblower case, and the whistleblower gets a share of any recovery, you know, that's the way the 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 system, the False Claims Act system works. Um, and this new uh, initiative you know, indicates that, you know, DOJ is, has significant concern uh, that contractors are not, you know, uh, ensuring this uh, cybersecurity uh, of the government's uh, information and they're going to use the civil false claims act uh, to pursue it. All right. Well, let's, I
1: mean, I, we have to unpack that a little bit. Yeah. I think we'll, we'll, you know, we're, we're up at the break so we can talk about it in the next Segment, But just what does that mean? What do government contractors need to think about? There's lots and lots of different cyber requirements across the government and making sense of that. Um, and, you know, also just from the perspective of how people are organized to comply with these sort of things in, inside their companies and what does that all, all that mean? Uh, my guest today is Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier. And we're talking about some of the key developments in government contracts right now. And uh, uh, Jason, when we took the break, we were talking about the DOJ Cyber Security Task Force. And, Mm -hmm. you know, just uh, thinking about, I guess, the management challenges or considerations that companies need to think about in this context. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, there's, a, there's kind of a hodgepodge of, you know, depending on which agency you're contracting with uh, you know, maybe you contract with multiple agencies that could have slightly different uh, cybersecurity requirements in your contracts and make, you know, making sure that uh, you know, and, and from a compliance perspective, You know, the folks within companies that are responsible for compliance, you know, it just it means that you really need to be communicating, you know, with the technical folks your IT people who are responsible, you know, for implementing, you know, the requirements. And, you know, that kind of interface between the compliance folks and the IT folks, I always find that, you know, that's always a, you know, often a a difficult thing within a, a contractor, you know, to kind of bridge the communication divide, that, that can sometimes happen, but if you're a, if you're a compliance professional, you know you're going to want to you know talk with your IT people uh, again. Not to you know you don't have to overdo overdo it, but you know this development of the government's you know the, the Justice Department you know looking at these issues as you know fertile ground for false claims act cases is concerning. And if you're a compliance person, you're going to want to make sure that you know, you, you know it's well documented internally you know, that you have you know done your due diligence to ensure that the technical folks understand the requirements, you know, that you've documented the good faith efforts the company has made uh, to comply with the requirements, you know, going ahead and having that good contemporaneous documentation of, uh, you know, the good faith effort, you know, that kind of thing. It you know, may not mean that you don't have a mistake. It may not mean that you're in perfect compliance. However, when you, get to the, you know, when you get to the False Claims Act, one of the things the government or a whistleblower has to show is that the contractor acted with deliberate ignorance of the truth or uh, 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 reckless disregard for the truth, right? And what that means in this context is they'd have to demonstrate, well, yeah, I know that's my requirement, but I'm just going to ignore it, uh, you know, and, 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 or I'm, gonna, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to worry about it. You know, you want to avoid that kind of thing. So if you make a record, that no, we take this seriously, and this person talked to that person, and you know, made sure that you know they understood what needed to be done, and you know, went back to confirm that it had actually been implemented. You know, that kind of thing will really help mitigate your risk, uh, you know, of a potential False Claims Act case based on these, based on you know, non-compliance with a, with a, a cybersecurity provision. Now, one thing that has already been tried, and there's 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 a couple different cases that have come out a bit differently on this, but. You know, there has been the assertion uh, made in one of these cases that has already involved cybersecurity issues. Well, you know, the government's not. My contract isn't for cybersecurity. My contract is to, you know, build a destroyer or whatever it is. You know, I'm not. I don't have a contract for cybersecurity. So this cybersecurity provision should not be considered a material provision of my contract that could give rise to False Claims Act liability. And at least one court has already rejected that. Uh, concept
1: yeah that seems uh yeah that doesn't seem like a winning
0: <laughs> argument <laughs> no, no, no. in the
1: world we live in today. No, no, no. Uh, right. Awesome. Um just your sense, just the last question on this, and then we can turn to the procurement. Yeah, another, you know, right. another thing. The procurement yes. collusion task force. But just do you have a sense I mean this is a highly complex area. And mm-hmm. I think both from a contractor's perspective but also from a DOJ perspective, this is going to be something that's going to be, I think the complexity of it, it seems to me, makes it harder to, you know, enforce or utilize, you know, the Uh, law to address this. Do you?
0: I I mean, I think if there were to actually be any trials on all of this, Roger, just think of what the government would have to actually have to demonstrate. If they actually litigated this all the way to the end, they'd have to demonstrate a noncompliance with these highly technical you know, how you even go about explaining that to a jury, I think could get very tricky. And then they'd have to demonstrate that the contractor, you know, acted with reckless disregard or deliberate ignorance of its obligations. That's another significant hurdle. You know, I think the government likely would c- clear the materiality hurdle you and I were just discussing. But I mean, just, just explaining to a jury and getting them to agree that there has been a, a, a violation I think that could get really, really tricky. And you'd you'd, you'd essentially, I I, I see no, I I think it would be highly likely you'd end up having kind of a battle of the experts on that kind of thing. Because it's not like the jury's going to be able to go look at the, you know, the IT system to see how secure it is. Right. You talking about some kind of issue that happened years before, by the time we get to a trial, I think it could be very complicated.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's kind of makes it a challenge for everybody. Yeah, just period. Um, And we all want good, Cybersecurity—that's that yeah. is fundamental too. Um, so let's turn to the um, DOJ's procurement collusion task force, um, and I know there's been some developments in that area or some action in that area. Can talk a little about. First, just quickly, quickly talk sure. about what the, what the task force is focusing uh, on and what's what you've seen happen recently.
0: You know, I mean, this this was one I got to I mean, quite frankly, you know, the, this is my personal opinion. I'm speaking in my personal capacity. I'm not officially representing you know the views of Miller Chevalier or any, you know, any other entity that I'm associated with. This initiative was launched in late 2019. And, you know, I, I was there for one of the early meetings to hear the Justice Department folks talk about this you know, anti-collusion strike force. You know, and the concern is that there's all this bid rigging going on uh, that that we need a strike for a strike force within the Justice Department to go out and combat it. And my initial reaction to it at the time, it just sounded like a, a, a solution in search of a problem, because, I mean, it, it, right. it just didn't seem to be a lot of, you know, there was some anecdotal information, but I mean, there was really no I mean, I, I, I heard no kind of hard data that would suggest that this is in some way a material problem uh, requiring, you know, a lot of attention by the Justice Department. Uh, but since then, uh, the, that, that strike force has grown uh, and it has about 500 individual investigators and attorneys in it now in 22 different U.S. attorney's offices. So, I mean, the, the government has, you know, DOJ has, has taken this very seriously uh, and they've thrown a lot of resources at it. Uh, and you know we have seen uh, you know that that there are more than uh, currently this is just this month more than thirty active investigations uh, by the by the anti by the collusion strike uh, force. So you know, they are they're looking at this. Uh, you know they are um, again. It's just yeah. You know, this reminds me, Roger. I don't know if you rem- remember. You know, a few years ago, this, probably ten years plus ago. You know, all those key tam cases out in Arkansas. That we're alleging all of these alliance. Agreements. It reminds me of that. I mean, it okay. reminds me of that kind of stuff.
1: Right. The the issues of how people team together and that yep. sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Interesting. Well, interesting to see what what all comes out of that as well. Yep. Um, it's uh, it's just another thing folks have to keep an eye on. Um, and you know we're coming up close to the last segment, and what I, what I'd like to do in the last segment is just run down through two three four issues real quickly and get your take on them whether it's Buy american act um sustainability requirements where we're going on that some maybe tdr and the last one is maybe a little bit on where the mspv the va's mspv program is from a legal perspective right now Uh, okay so we'll do that in the last segment we'll talk try to get those four in uh, real quickly, my guest today is Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier, and we've been talking, you know, uh, about developments in government contracts. And we covered the vaccine mandate uh, implementation. We've covered the cybersecurity uh, task force from DOJ and the procurement collusion task force, just a quick updates on those. So this is going to be sort of the lightning round, uh, uh Jason. So we've got four issues I want to tackle sure. real quickly, get your sense from a legal perspective, what companies, need to be aware of and thinking about. And the first one is, you know, the the administration is focusing a lot on Buy America, domestic Mm -hmm. sourcing and the supply chain, just generally in resiliency in the supply chain. You know, so you've seen the Buy American Act updated, their uh, the implementation the regulations from domestic contact perspective yep. what what do you think companies need to what's the takeaways for companies what do they need to be thinking about no,
0: you just you, you know you need to be monitoring you know the, so the administration act came out with this proposed rule on you know new baa requirements uh, a couple months ago and you just need to make sure that your compliance folks are on top of it and that your supply chain folks are are aware i mean that's where it that's where it starts from a compliance perspective you know making sure that the people who are doing your purchasing, right, are aware of the changing landscape here and that you have folks in your company that are monitoring both what's, you know, both the regulatory changes and then making sure they get to the right people right away. Because, you know, I mean, again, as with any, you know, the, you know, the Justice Department, again, you know, on issues of like, you know, this has become, you know, with the last administration and continuing into this one, you know, this, this is not, this is an area where we haven't seen a really a significant shift, right? I mean, with the last administration was very pro by America, you know, and the Biden administration, you know, these new regulations increasing the d- domestic content requirements significantly, and they're going to keep going up. I and mean, that's, that's one of the things that your compliance folks are going to want to be monitoring, you know, over the course of time, what qualifies as an American made product it's going to become you know it's going to become more difficult to meet the component test because the the percentage is, i think is going up as high as 75% over the next several years the domestic content so you know making sure your folks are aware tracking you know and that's an issue it's kind of a politic it's also a politically fraught one so it is one where you know that kind of you know if you're not in compliance you got to be thinking about that you know that false claims act uh, potential liability out there, and again, the best defense there is to do your homework now and document that you've done it, right? right? And that you've and you've got to process procedures in place. And you know, I always, you know, anytime I'm, I I mention processes and procedures, I always <laughs> emphasize. You know, it's great to have policies and procedures that are written down, but if you write them down and then don't follow them, it's worse than not having any <laughs> policies and procedures right, at all.
1: Right. You're 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 reckless, <laughs> you're acting with reckless disregard for your own policies and procedures. Yes. And, and and it would be fair to say, like, for, you know, Buy American Act applies to a certain percentage of government contracts. But okay. just you you know, it seems to me your advice would, you would apply in the Trade Agreements Act. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, context where you know products can be from designated end countries yep. but but for example China is not is Chinese not. products are now eligible under the yep. Trade Agreements Act and in contrast yep. they are eligible under the Buy American Act so it's one of the ironies of <laughs> you know the current state of <laughs> right oil.
0: well and it's also important I always like to point out as well I mean buy America is a price preference.
1: Right. You know, it's not an exclusion.
0: Is, it's not an exclusion. TAA is different. I mean under right. TAA you have to provide an, an item that's from either the United States or, or one of the designated countries.
1: Right. So sustainability, that's, this is, you know, a topic number two of the four, um, you know, what we're starting to see, um, you know, the administration is very focused on um, sustainability, uh, you know, climate and, yep. and addressing climate challenges and issues we face. And in the, that's rolling into like the mandate is, in a certain sense, like these things are, are being rolled out in yeah. government contracts, yeah. um, the potential reporting requirements first on greenhouse gases. And then maybe even down the road, you could see, you know, a, a contract requirements about attempting to reduce, you know, greenhouse gases or sort of things. Any thoughts in that area from your uh,
0: legal perspective? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, uh, and I, I guess also just before I say this, but uh, you know, I mean, we've seen overall, I mean, Roger, what we have been talking about today, I mean, it, this one, one significant difference between this administration and the last is the level of enforcement activity. All right. So this, this administration is much more active on enforcement, much more active in new compliance obligations, like sustainability, like the vaccine mandate, you know, BAA, again, I, we had that under the last one, but, you know, the, the you know, rolling out New obligations through the procurement process. This administration is doing that far more than than the last one did. So you know, again, you're with any new requirement like this, it's that good you know contract administration hygiene. You know, if you're in house, you know the people I typically work with, you know, in house counsel, contracts professionals. It's making you sure you're staying up to date on these kinds of issues, and so that you can make sure that they are being properly. And again, this is, this is, you know, how you, how you track, you know, how, you know, making sure that you have the personnel within your company that can track, you know, the, the, your, the, the uh, issues are going to have to be reporting back on, you know, all of that is going to, you know, and making sure that the relevant stakeholders within the company understand the kind of personnel you might need to hire in order to comply with sustainability requirements. You know, all of that, uh, you know, really puts a new, you know, to be being a contracts professional right now in, in a government contractor uh, within a government contractor is that's a that's, that's a that's a significant task right now, because, I mean, there are a lot of these new obligations that have come out you know, vaccine, sustainability, domestic preferences, etc.
1: And I think also, like from a practical perspective, you know, companies will have to think about how that affects the price that they can absolutely. provide to them. Right.
0: Absolutely. I mean, Would- I mean, Absolutely. Which is fine I mean if you, if
1: if there are priorities that the government okay. you know sees and you know that uh, those priorities will should be reflected in you know the you know the funding that's available to support those and I, it's something that's going to be baked into the system i think so yep. yeah, so the next issue I'll talk about real quick is the GSA schedules program and you know the transactional data reporting, and you know I know the Jeff Kosas, senior procurement executive just recently issued a memo saying you know, the pilot's been, you know, pretty successful, it's been successful and they're going to expand it, you know, uh, across the program. So, which is the responsibility for the federal acquisition service. Just any thoughts on what that means for government contractors who well, are on
0: schedule? Uh, I mean, I think, again, I just think it's a, I, I can see no other, I think it's highly positive. I think it's highly positive for contractors that are on schedule because, you know, the issue that has is always tripped up, have resulted in, you know, contra- GSA scheduled contractors having to call people like me. are we've talked a lot about the Civil Falls Claims Act here today, Roger. You know, our Civil False Claims Act allegations Uh, that are based upon the pricing disclosures, you know, the CSP form that is submitted, you know, under the traditional way of pricing schedule contracts, submitted up front, and then the pricing on the schedule is based upon the disclosure. And then all of those cases involve, you know, an allegation that the disclosure was materially inaccurate and fraudulent, blah, 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 blah. Well, with TDR, that, that CSP form is gone. So you're not making that kind of disclosure. You know, the, this, this, it's this move from, you know, the, a vertical pricing concept to a horizontal pricing concept where they're going to compare your proposed pricing for the most part to the pricing of what they consider to be similar stuff that's already on schedule. Now, what we've run into on that, you know, so, I mean, I think from a compliance perspective, it is, it has greatly reduced the burden where I think it has uh, been more difficult is in that, negotiation up front because there's just not, you know, with the CSP form, it's like everybody, every contractor fills out the same form. We're all used to the form. The contracting officers are used to the form. It has a certain, you know, kind of standard data in it, that kind of stuff. You know, now it's this more, you know, bespoke approach to pricing. Where, you know, they're, you're doing your market analysis, you know, because the premise, the really the, I mean, it's, it's in the rule now. I mean, the, the premise of it is supposed to be market-based pricing. So contractors are coming in with, they've done their own market analysis. Then GSA will feed it into, I, for, I always forget what they call that tool that they have, but they'll, they'll feed your, your offering into their tool and they'll spit stuff back out. To you. I've never worked with a contractor yet who's said, oh yeah, that tool works great. You know, every contractor I've worked with has said, you know, what, that comes back, oh, you're comparing us to apples and oranges, and that's not a fair comparison, and blah, 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 blah. So you have to go through that fight. But, you know, from a legal perspective, you know, from my perspective, you know, it's better to have that fight then, you know, you might not get exactly the pricing that you want, but you'll have that fight, and you won't have this potential, you know, uh, sword hanging over your head uh, while you go into performance you know someone could come along and say that the CSP form was somehow inaccurate you know so i I, I and and you don't have the price reductions clause ob- obligation either you know and and you know what, Roger when you mentioned uh, Jeff Cosis's memo you know folks folks you know who are on schedule may remember you know that that followed not too long you know after the uh, the uh, gSAig uh, you know uh, recommended that the entire TDR program be terminated. Uh, And, you know, and it's very interesting that uh, GSA turned that down uh, and is, you know, going full speed ahead, uh, which I'm sure is much to the chagrin of the IG.
1: Right. Well, it is a, you know, it does reflect what's going on in the market now. If you talk about transactional data reporting, I think that's kind of where GSA is, which makes, you know, makes sense. So last issue, we got about a minute and a half left is (laughs) uh, it's not a lot of time, but, you know, the the MSP va's mspv <laughs> middle mid search prime vendor program that was subject to a bid protest decision this summer and the va is trying to you know figure out the way forward and just have any thoughts on um you know what the kind of decision sort of means for them just just real quick uh, jason really?
0: well i mean there the, the, i know there's the big bottom. size there yeah, but, but uh, at the bottom the bottom line is is that they just got a lot of homework to do Because they have it, they've got to be, and you and I have talked about this before, Roger, but the, uh, uh, you know, they've got to be prepared, you know, for more protests, uh, regardless of what they do. And if there's more protests, they almost certainly are going back to the same judge. And, you know, that judge, you know, pretty clearly indicated he is going to hold them to a, a pretty high standard. Uh, and review whatever rationale they come up with, whether it's to move forward, you know, go back to transferring over to DLA or doing something else, you know, themselves, whatever it is, I think is going to be subject to some very searching scrutiny. Uh, And so I I would think that within the VA, they are work, you know, my recommendation would be if I were their lawyer, let's work really hard to put together a really good record uh, because we got to anticipate we're back in front of that same judge.
1: Right. Well, yeah. And they have the administrative issue, like the paperwork and the authorities around go you know transferring to another agency that's one set of issues which i yep. think the judge did decide on yep. then you got the procurement issues whether they are ongoing solicitations they have <laughs> right. right that that whether where there were you know protests and sustained on the yep. evaluation of the prime vendor contracts and then you also have the procurement issues around the scope of the DLA contracts that you could see ha- you know come and whether those contracts were awarded and competed, contemplating, you know, including, you know, a significant significant increase in business by moving VA requirements there. So there's procurement issues, there's administrative issues, and then there's small business issues as well with the you know with Vets First Act. So lots for them to be thinking about, and um, and a lot, a lot to quote as you say, document and try to get get right. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jason, I want to thank you for being on the show today. We got through those four issues. I I appreciate it. So, uh, yeah, but thank you so much. My guest today has been Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network.
0: You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.